Welcome to A Penny for Your Thoughts, a broadcast brought to you by Sean Bloomgren and Andrew Penny from Central Iowa, a show where we discuss all things agronomy, high yield management, and give you real-time updates from the field. We will also gain insight from industry professionals as we bring you relevant and timely information on current agronomic management practices. Andrew, good morning and welcome. How are you today? Doing great, Sean. How's, how's your day going so far? Good, good. Really excited to be back. Um, kind of wanted to start today's show uh, just briefly by saying thank you to the people that have tuned in. This uh, show is in its infancy, uh, but we have gotten just a lot of great feedback and, and really appreciate uh, those of you that have engaged with the show and um, certainly been patient as we <laughs> as we figure this process out. We're, uh, it seems like we're learning something every week. Um, but it's it's uh, it's been a lot of fun to learn. So uh, appreciate those of you that are tuning in. And then just a real quick update. Uh, Farm Journal uh, through the Daily Scoop, uh, Time Morgan put out a really good article today talking about Tar Spot. And uh, certainly our um, our episode with Allison was uh, was lengthy, um, <laughs> a little bit longer than planned. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Time did a great job and actually um, interviewed Darcy Tolinko, who Allison uh, referenced pretty uh, pretty frequently in our interview. So um, check that if check that out if you guys want a succinct version of kind of what we talked about. Um, so yeah, excited to get going today. Andrew, would you uh, do the honor of introducing our guest? Yeah, th- thanks, Sean. So I'm, I'm uh, excited to introduce uh, Dr. Kirsten Wise from the University of Kentucky, and uh, I, I'd like to say it's 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 a it's a situation that's pretty cool for me. You know, I, I guess I've never told you this, Kirsten, but you were someone that I remember maybe boy ten years ago back when you were still at Purdue. I you know I looked up to Allison and Darren, but then there was also you and Carl. So I remember you guys had quite the impact unknowingly on, on my career because I remember that was kind of the, the, the beginning of the talk of, you know, the physiological effects of fungicide, fungicide resistance. And I, I just remember reading a lot of your articles and, and thinking, man, that's, uh, you know, Carl and, and Kirsten are pretty cool. And then next thing you know, there we were in Chicago eating deep, deep dish pizza together at that, that bar and grill playing that game, whatever, with Darren. And so that was a pretty cool moment. It's pretty cool to be interviewing now. So, so thanks for, for being here. Well, thanks, Andrew. Yeah, that means a lot. Um, you know, and and I and vice versa. You know, now I'm reading your papers, right? So, <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So, so Kirsten's here today. Uh, we're we're going to focus on on ear rots and, and mycotoxins. You know, uh, Sean and I have been getting a number of of, of texts and, and pictures from growers. You know, with with the the droughty conditions and, and I would say just the the abnormal environmental conditions we've seen here in, in the state and across the Corn Belt. I think there's more and more ear rots uh, popping up, and, and with that, you know, there's a, there's always a discussion of mycotoxins. And Kirsten's Kirsten's definitely one of the experts in the industry. So so thanks again for being here with us, Kirsten. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Yeah, Kirsten, would you? I guess kind of to start, give us uh, give us your background. Um, uh, where are you from? What are you passionate about? And what's your education? Yes. So actually, I'm an Iowa native. I grew up in Iowa and um, got my bachelor's at Iowa State University. Um, And I, you know, grew up in in the cornfields. I rogue detasseled, which I'm pretty sure like is the law that every Iowa kid has to do. That. Yeah, that's, that's becoming a lost art though. You know, I mean, you're, you're probably, uh, probably one of the, the last to really do that manually anyway. I know, I know that's kind of like dating myself. Right. <laughs> but, um, 
but but yeah, I spent a lot of time in the corn. Um, but when I graduated from Iowa State, I got my degree in plant health and protection. Um, I actually went to the University of Georgia and got my master's in um, plant pathology. And I decided to keep going, and I went to North Dakota State University for my PhD. So I really did these climate yeah, you've been everywhere. <laughs> yeah, um, and tried the really, really hot conditions, and then the really cold conditions, um, and, and worked on a diversity of crops. But then I was really happy when I graduated at NDSU. Um, the position for a field crops pathologist was open at Purdue University, and that's where I started my career. Um, so I was really actually happy to get back to the Midwest and happy to get back into the field crops world. And um, I was at Purdue for eight years before the opportunity came up um, to be sort of the extension corn pathologist at the University of Kentucky. And so it was a really good opportunity. And um, I think I've been here six five, six years now. So um, I've gotten to see corn production in a lot of different areas. And, and I think it's helped me be a, a better corn pathologist. Well, before we came online, I told Kirsten, she's my favorite guest, because uh, those those of you that are, are customers and friends know about the Customer Experience Center and, and much, of, uh, much of the fun in that room is sourced from Kentucky. So uh, <laughs> we're going to probably leverage that connection to the best of our ability. Um, Kirsten, we start our show kind of with two things. So uh, first of all, tell me a little bit about December 11th, 2021 in Kentucky. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's a That was a big day here. Um, we had a, a string of, of devastating tornadoes come through the western part of Kentucky. Um, and those were one of those was a continuation of a tornado that actually started in Arkansas. And so there was a lot of a lot of um, communities um, and people that were you know, just their lives changed really that day. Um, and, you know, here in Princeton, we were part of that, you know, the tornado came through um, our town and not only impacted many people in the community who lost their homes and, and things, but also our research station. So the University of Kentucky has a research and education center in Princeton um, that houses, um, you know, eight different faculty from a variety of different departments and, you know, has up to 50 staff. So there's about 70 people that work in total between all the administrators and faculty and staff out here for the University of Kentucky. And that station was completely destroyed. So we lost, um, I think, you know, 46 of the 50 buildings. Um, wow. And and so at all of, almost all of the infrastructure, a bunch of the equipment, um, yeah, it, it was really <laughs> sort of a, um, you know, almost to a ground zero reset of the station. And we're still in recovery. Um, I mean, it, you know, you know, these things take a really long time. And, um, you know, so we're nine months out and we, um, we're, we're getting temporary facilities back on site. We were able to do some field research this year, um, thanks to a lot of great help from a lot of our collaborators. A lot of our industry folks really stepped up and helped us out to get some things so we could continue to do research here. And um, a lot of people in the community also really, a lot of the farmers were very generous with their time and their equipment and things to help us out. And so, you know, it was 
it was really um, a, a terrible event, but it was also really great to see, you know, how people pull together and how generous everyone is and, and how great people are when these things happen to pull together and, and make things happen. So I'm always we're impressed. Still uh, I'm always impressed with the ag community, you know, in, in, in the face of challenges, it's, it's funny, we can get competitive and, and, uh, and that sort of thing in, in normal times, but it's such a great community when there is um, tragedy and, and, and challenges like that. So I'm, 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 I'm glad to hear that. And certainly our, our, our prayers and best wishes for the uh, rebuilding and, and recovery of the area. Um, as we transition, I guess, tell me, um, we, we, so we have a, a question that we ask all of our guests. So uh, not related to, to ear rot or mycotoxins, but just kind of agriculture in general. What are you most excited about right now? Yeah, so this is a fun question because, and I think Andrew knows this a little bit, but I'm a person who's always interested in like new technology. And I think some of the technological advances that we're making in agriculture are really exciting. So some of the things that we're doing, you know, with AI, um, new technology, new equipment deployment, um, ways that we can be more efficient and, and harnessing some of the energies to be more efficient with everyone's time and land resources. I'm really excited about how we can take these technological innovations and really improve agriculture. So those are the things I'm always trying to study and um, get involved with and interested to see how we can improve agriculture through our technology. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I think that's that is one of the, the most fun parts of, of crop production and agriculture in general. You know, it seems like every year something different occurs. And it, it, it takes scientists and just people thinking differently to to think about how we can improve what we're doing every year. Because, you know, you think about it, a lot of people only get 30 to 40 chances in their lifetime to make changes on, on what they're doing. And so, yeah, it, it's I think the same way. Well, love to hear stuff like that. Yeah, the, ra the rapid advancement of this stuff is so interesting to watch. And then, you know, sometimes we have great technology and we just have to determine what to do with it. And so... Uh, no, totally agree. Give us uh, give us a, an update, Kirsten, on um, probably most of us are are not super familiar with Kentucky and and the the crops you're working with. Give us just kind of a general update on on uh, crops in Kentucky right now. Yeah, so in Kentucky, um, harvest is is underway. Um, so um, I'm out in the western part of the state, which is more of row crop um, agriculture. So lots of corn, soybean, wheat, um, a good amount of tobacco out here. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> but really a lot of the same crops that you 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 all are have in in Iowa as well. Um, and we are full swing into harvest. Um, now, we did have some pretty intense drought conditions in pockets of the state. Um, some areas got some timely rains, but um, in particular, the corn, you know, has suffered quite a bit. You know, some places I'm hearing some, you know, pretty good yields and then other places um, they were cutting for silage. And, you know, what they did leave for grain is pretty, pretty dismal. And so it just really depends on if you caught some rains, um, planting date, I think had a lot to do with it too. And, you know, we're just kind of waiting to see how harvest shakes out and hear what the impact will be when it's all said and done. What maturities, uh, corn and soybeans, what, what's your maturity range you, you work with? 
Well, out here um, in the western part of the state, it can be pretty wide, but I would say, you know, 112 to 116 is probably pretty common. Um, you get some of the 110s um, and you might get some of the longer too, but I would say sort of in that, you know, low 110 to 116 is that's going to be where we are planning most of it. Sure. Awesome. Well, I, I really appreciate the update. It's it's fun as we kind of uh, have different guests on just to understand the, the variety of things that um, so many things are similar and so many things are different. But let's let's talk about ear rots and mycotoxins, shall we? Um, that's <laughs> that's the point of today. So, um, you know, we're going to spend uh, we're kind of going to cut the show into kind of two different topics and so uh we're going to spend the first half of the show kind of just discussing the science and then and then we'll we'll spend some time applying that science so andrew go ahead and, and kind of give us our introduction and yeah yeah so i i thought it'd be really good to to talk about ear rots and, and then you know at some point mycotoxins just because you know those ear rots can produce mycotoxins in, in certain situations but you know like like i said earlier we've been getting enough text <clears throat> from people uh, just wondering what what this ear rot is, or or what what they can do about it. Should they be worried about it? That that I figure it'd be a good time to discuss because I, I think even within the pathology world, you know, I feel like ear rots just don't get discussed as much as as maybe they should. And so, you know, I think there's some confusions about mycotoxins um, in in the ear rots that that produce them. And so, I, I figure I'd start by just just giving a, a little bit of a background and, and some information on ear rots and mycotoxins. So, you know, the, the common ear rots that we deal with here in, in Iowa and across the Corn Belt, you know, we got Fusarium, Diplodia, uh, Penicillium, uh, Aspergillus, which, which is a, a common one that, that we'll discuss and, and can produce aflatoxins, uh, and, and then Gibberella. And, and then, you know, a, a number of those uh, ear rots are associated with mycotoxins. And, and this is where it gets really confusing, I think, for some, for some people. Uh, e even within the pathology world, you know, like I said, I just don't think it gets discussed enough. And, and so, you know, the, the mycotoxins are, um, it, it's basically, that's the term used to describe the toxins or secondary metabolites that these ear rots can produce in, in certain situations. And, and that's where we're really going to dive in here too, at some point with, with Kirsten and, and discuss and, and maybe break out the individual mycotoxins, you know, the, the environmental conditions associated with their production. And, and kind of maybe answer why, why are they produced? Because I, I remember at some point, and, and maybe this has changed, maybe it hasn't. I don't know if we've really figured out why these ear rots, you know, these 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 fungi are producing mycotoxins, and so that that's something we'll we'll, we'll discuss too. And so, so Kirsten, I'd, I'd like to start us off with with just a, a broad discussion with uh, you know focusing on some of those ear rots. Um, what do you guys see in Kentucky? Uh, you know, I, I know I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with some of the more common ear rots that we have in the corn belt so so what are the what are the common ear rots that, that we'll see in in the you know the corn belt um in in, in cornfields yeah so andrew i think you hit most of them um and and what you all see in the corn belt is pretty similar to what we can get in kentucky as well and in most years in sort of an average um corn production year i would say probably your most common ear rots are going to be things like diplodia ear rot and um, especially up in your area gibberella ear rot can be kind of concerning as well um, especially if you get sort of the wet weather around silking it can be more of a concern yep um we 
we would normally see in Kentucky, um, fusarium ear rot can be more of a problem because we can be a little drier and hotter around silking. And this year, really the hot topic has been aspergillus ear rot because of the drought conditions that primarily occurred, you know, at silking during pollination um, and a little bit into early grain fill, um, particularly down in some of these states. But I, I can give you some good news is that here in Kentucky and in some of my states to the south too, um, we have not been picking up a lot of aspergillus rot, at least not to the levels of concern that we thought we might see. So that that has been a welcome relief this year. Yeah, absolutely. And, and aspergillus, that's the one we often get a little, a little nervous about because that's the one associated with aflatoxin production. So, so, so I'm curious, uh, Kirsten, you know, we, we have, I think most people are familiar with the conditions that, um, you know, a foliar pathogen will infect and, and produce lesions on, on leaves. What's, what are the situations in, in environmental factors that, you know, will, will increase the chance for ear rots? You know, when does that infect? Is it, is it during silking? Is it due to insect feeding, hail damage? What, what are the scenarios that, that cause infection? Yeah, so whenever I talk about ear rats, I always say, you know, you don't notice them until the end of the year, but that infection actually occurred much earlier around silking. Um, and that's that's for most of our ear rats, um, the primary infection period is going to be sometime during silking. Now, what that means for different urots, you know, gibberella might infect a little bit earlier in the silking period, whereas diplodia, fusarium, aspergillus might infect a little bit later in that, you know, um, silking period or when those silks start to dry down. But that's really the window of time. If we get the right environmental conditions for the particular fungus that causes an urot, silking is when um, a lot of those infections are going to occur. Now, wounding is also going to be, um, you know, create entry points for some of these fungi to get into ears. And so if you think about insect damage, you mentioned hail damage, um, you know, we get some bird damage, you know, like anything that's going to create a wound that allows a fungus to kind of get a, a foothold in there can also contribute to some of these ear rots too. Okay, that's that's a, a, a good description, and, and I think that helps clear up some of the, um, you know, maybe, I wouldn't say misinformation, but just, like I said, just not really discussed a whole lot. So I, I think there's a lot to learn with this topic, especially when it comes to, you know, the, the infection period. So so with that, you know, what we, we, we start talking about mycotoxins. What, what, what do we know about mycotoxin production in, in their association with ear rots? Yeah, so you know, I'm sure you know the general terminology um, that we usually say is that mycotoxins are a byproduct of the fungal infection, right? They're non-living, they're secondary metabolites, you know, they're just um, these metabolites that accumulate in the grain as the fungus is kind of moving through that ear, um, causing infection. And with that, you know, we know that different mycotoxins um, accumulate in different parts of the kernel. Um, and we know that, you know, some, some of those mycotoxins might be more associated when you see that, you know, maybe that fungal mat on the cob, you might see more mycotoxins. But there are some ear rot fungi that you can have 
um, very high mycotoxin concentrations without seeing a lot of mold. And I think that's one of the misperceptions that we hear a lot is that just because you don't see a lot of mold on an ear, it doesn't necessarily mean you don't have a high level of mycotoxins in the grain. Yeah, yeah. So, so with with these individual mycotoxins, is is there one that that is more, um, you know, that 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 growers or livestock producers should be more uh, aware of when when they're thinking about, um, you know, the ear rots associated with them? Yes. So the two that I'm always most concerned about, um, it's always Aspergillus ear rot. It's our scariest ear rot um, because aflatoxin is so carcinogenic and it's so toxic. Um, as you know, we measure those um, levels for aflatoxin in parts per billion. That's how carcinogenic it is. Whereas with all of our other mycotoxins, you know, those um, safe levels of consumption are measured in parts per million. So it's really, you know, it, it's a big difference in the amount of mycotoxin you can have before you see impacts. And then the other mycotoxin that I'm always most concerned about, especially in your area, um, is going to be deoxynovalanol, um, or, you know, we commonly call it vomitoxin, which is with gibberella erot, because that is a mycotoxin that's very toxic to um, swine. Yep. And so if you have anybody who has got a hog operation, um, so if you get some corn that has um, deoxynovalanol in it, it can be really devastating to that type of, that type of stock production. Yeah, and, and I think you brought up a good point discussing aspergillus and, and aflatoxin. I remember the the last time we had that, uh, you know, a, a big issue with that here in Iowa. I think it was around 2014. You know, we had a really dry summer, and I was I was still working retail at the time. And I, and I remember every every semi truck load that of corn that growers would bring in. You know, we were testing with a black light. And I remember back then that was that was one of the best ways to detect um, aspergillus. You know, it, it doesn't the, the aflatoxin isn't what is lighting up with the, the black light. It was actually the aspergillus. And so is, is that still the best method to detect um, aspergillus using a black light? Oh, Andrew, I'm so glad you brought this up because <laughs> like if I had a soapbox, it would be the black light. Test. <laughs> <laughs> So I wonder, like, this to me, I understand it was a, it was really one of the best ways that we had to detect this, you know, a, a long time ago. But the black light, it actually is detecting kojic acid. It's not detecting a fungus. It's not detecting aflatoxin. It is detecting kojic acid. And there are several fungi, and there's a lot of other junk out there that can produce kojic acid. And I also point out, because I always get a call, it never fails in a, in a drought year, somebody bought a black light at Walmart and they're <laughs> in their grain and they're shining it around and they're like, it's lighting up. And so there's the black light test. It also is a certain type of black light and they're looking at a certain wavelength. So it's not something you can really replicate on your own on a home scale and you really shouldn't. Um, and even with the testing methods they use at the elevators, when we talk about the black light, we say, okay, you could use it as a preliminary screen, but if you have it light up, that grain needs to be tested with um, a quantitative method that's actually testing for aflatoxin. And those exist. There's different tests and kits that can be done on site, um, or if there's a 
return. Um, grain can be sent off to a testing lab while they, while, where they will test it with more rigorous methods um, to determine if aflatoxin is present and, and what the concentration might be. But for the black light test, you know, again, maybe as a preliminary screen at the elevator with the correct equipment, but just know it's not detecting aflatoxin, it's detecting um, an acid that's produced by a lot of different things. That's I'm, I'm imagining like college age Andrew Penny with his lava lamp out, you know, above the, <laughs> above the grain part as it's coming into the elevator. <laughs> That's funny. So, so I'm glad you brought up those. The, the I'm glad we brought up this black light conversation because I know there are immunoassay kits out there available. Um, do you know how quick those are? Because you know, I'm I'm picturing, you know, I, I feel like we were probably two to three weeks a, away from having potentially uh, another year where aspergillus could have been a big problem because we were so dry here in central Iowa, and, and, and excuse me, and actually much of the state that that mm -hmm. I, I think that would have be, become an issue kind of like 2014 ish um but but we started getting some pretty decent rains so i'm not as concerned that the temperatures kind of cooled off but um I, i'm curious you know i'm picturing multiple semi load loads of of corn being brought into an elevator are, are these immune um, immuno assay kits pretty quick is, is that something that you know would, would you know you could actually use just due to how quick you know those trucks are moving through yeah, so they're, they are, um, I, I'll say they're quick-ish if they're done correctly. Um, so the really the first step starts with the sample, right? Um, so the amount of sample that you're getting um, from the, the probe, if you're taking a probe, and that's going to have an impact because all that corn has to be ground before it can go through these, these test kits, right? So they're going to grind that corn, and then they're going to prep a buffer, and then they're going to put that grain in the buffer and then they're going to have to let it sit for a few minutes and then they're going to have to read the test in a scanner or with a skin strip thing and so it can take um i remember when i was in indiana they were doing some timings on it and like a really like experienced person could kind of get through that whole process in 20 to 30 minutes oh, wow. um and and they might have um improved that by now um, but I think that the, the key was really the experience, right? So a person has to know what they're doing and there was a lot of different things that went into it, right? So the, you know, parts of the buffers or the strips had to stay cold. So they had to have a fridge nearby. Um, and all of your equipment needs to be kept free of dust, which, you know, in an elevator is very hard to do. <laughs> Def definitely. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So, so we, we have a lot of education that we try to talk to about farmers, about how those tests work. So if they get a positive at an elevator, um, you know, here's all the steps that it took to get that positive. Um, and here's all the things that needed to happen for it to be accurate. Um, and so for me, you know, a positive test in an elevator indicates that in that particular probe sample, you had something that um, was flagged. Now, it's an indication if you're going to be using that grain for feed um, or if it's going to be stored or if it has an endpoint where it's going to any livestock or any um, food production area, then the next step would be that grain needs to be tested in a lab to determine a more accurate representation of what the concentration of mycotoxin might be. Yeah, I, I guess I'd like to jump in here. And, and so help me understand what indicator 
excuse me, what indicator should I be looking for, you know, as I'm, as I'm harvesting? So, so just uh, as I'm, as I'm going through the field in the combine or as I'm scouting before we start harvest, what indicators would, would give me the red flag that I should be paying close attention to these erots and, and potentially screening for mycotoxins? Yes. So pre-harvest scouting is the, the best defense against um, any grain problems from erots and mycotoxins. Because if you can get out there and know that there's a problem before you harvest, you're going to be in a much better spot because you know that grain needs to be segregated if you have sort of an indication. Um, and so when we talk about the, the pre-harvest scouting, what you want to be looking at is ears in different areas. And if it's aspergillus, look, you know, in on hillsides, on the dry areas, um, in your lighter soils where they would be more drought stressed, look in those areas first. And we sort of consider 10% um, ear rot a threshold. Okay. So if you're 100 ears, and 10% of them have that sort of olive green, dusty mold, um, that is an indication that you have a problem. If you see a little bit of mold, you know, on maybe one ear or two ears, it might not be a problem. With aspergillus, you know, we would still say, okay, make sure you're, you're harvesting and segregating that grain because it could be a problem at the elevator or depending on the end use. With most of our other erots, 10% is a very hard threshold. So like if you get those 10 ears, you know that's probably going to be a problem. And then once you know that you have that 10% threshold, like we said, that grain needs to be harvested. It needs to be harvested and dried down because the longer it stays out in the field, um, these mycotoxins will continue producing um, and these fungi will continue to produce those mycotoxins until grain is below 15% moisture. So you can't just leave it out there in the field and hope um, that the problem will like, resolve itself because the longer that grain is above 15% moisture, the more mycotoxin can accumulate. So, so, so priority and getting that corn dry is going to be the first thing that you want to do. So when, when we talk about grain segregation, is there a, is there an opportunity to use potentially uh, afflicted grain as fuel? Uh, can I, is there the same consequence if I were to take this to an ethanol plant as if I were to take it to a local elevator? Yeah, so if, if mycotoxin affected grain goes to an ethanol plant, they're going to have a much different standard um, and it'll probably get rejected much more quickly um, because mycotoxins have a tendency to accumulate through that process, right? So the end product um, mycotoxin levels will actually be higher than the grain that went in. And so they usually are going to be much more stringent about any mycotoxin, um, potential mycotoxin issues um, than just a, a regular um, grain buyer. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, we have a significant number of growers that are going to harvest uh, their own grain, take it to their own bin site and store that grain. Um, obviously, you've pointed out that the emphasis needs to be on uh, pre-harvest scouting, right? We need to we need to know about potential problems before we discover them with the combine. But give me some best 
best handling. You you talked about dry down, um, but but maybe handling in bins, uh, dry down percentages, those sorts of things. Just what's the best um, what's the best way for growers who want to handle and store their own grain, and then and then maybe second part of that would be if you are a uh, if you're using your own grain for feed. Yeah. So if we're just storing it, um, always we're making sure that, you know, if you have the opportunity to segregate grain that is from the, the fields that have ear molds, it's going to be better than putting it all into the same bin, um, maybe as your high quality grain. And also you want to kind of know what bin it is because that bin is going to have to be monitored because mycotoxins, you know, they just don't go away, right? So as long as you have that grain, you're going to have to monitor it for mycotoxin and monitor for those moisture levels. And so we usually say, okay, if you're short storing it for under a year, um, that grain needs to go in, it needs to get dry, and it needs to be held under 15%. Now, if you're going to store it for multiple years or longer than a year, um, I advocate storing it at 13%. And here's why. Because really every March I get a call from a grower who put his grain away and maybe had an ear mold problem and it was tested and it might have been you know, two parts per million Don when he put it away. But then when he tried to sell it in March at the elevator, they were telling him he had, you know, six to eight parts per million Don and they wouldn't take it. And he said, well, what happened? And I said, well, did you monitor the moisture of your grain the whole time? Because hot spots can pop up, um, you know, that moisture can kind of increase in the winter. And if we're not monitoring it, those mycotoxins, if that grain gets above 15% moisture, they'll continue to um, accumulate in the grain. So when I, when I harvest, um, and so with the with goal of grain segregation, if I have a situation, do I have worry about contamination? You know, most of us have a, a continuous flow or batch dryer. Do I have to worry about contamination of my either my wet holding bin or my dryer on the way to segregation? Yes, I mean it's possible if the grain is high moisture and the environment um, is favorable, you know, with some wet conditions. But really, where we worry about the largest amount um, of contamination is when it's on the ear. Um, in the field, and it has the greatest opportunity to spread in those kernels. The kernel to kernel spread is lower if you can meet those um, conditions of keeping the grain dry. Excellent. Talk a little bit about uh, uh, cattle and swine. Um, I guess really any any animal production. Um, how how should those growers be thinking about this, and what tools do they have to monitor um, levels? Yes. So if this is going to go into any livestock operation, you'll want to get grain, the feed tested um, so that you know sort of what level of mycotoxin you're dealing with in the feed um, and and what mycotoxins you have. Um, and so sending those off, you know, your local extension um, office can help you find some of those mycotoxin testing labs. And I always, um, you know, try to encourage farmers to make sure that grain is dry when you send the sample in, because if it sits in a Ziploc bag um, on a countertop for a week before it's tested and it's not 
dry, um, the, that mycotoxin level can increase while it's waiting to be tested. So you might not get an accurate representation of what's in your grain. And so once those levels come back, um, there are documented guidelines of how much, how many parts per million can go into feed rations. And so that would be sort of the starting point for sort of dealing with that grain, knowing what you have, knowing what mycotoxins you have and what level, and then looking at it compared to those guidelines for how you can actually feed that grain. Yeah. It, because <clears throat> I would say it varies based on the type of livestock and the type of mycotoxin that you have. Yeah, it is pretty eye-opening, Kirsten, when you start looking at some of the, you know, just the individual mycotoxins, you know, deoxynivalenol, zearlanone, you know, your fumonacins, aflatoxins, their, their impact on, on different li livestock in, in parts per million and, and some even parts per billion. So it, it is pretty eye-opening and important if, if you're a livestock producer to, you know, to, to at least keep this in the back of your mind and, and be looking for that, you know, as you harvest. Um, I'm curious, Kirsten, what, what are we what are we seeing and in, in maybe doing in, in regards to research looking at, at managing di different ear rots uh, in, in the field? Yeah, so this has been sort of um, like a, a component of my career since I started because um, I've always been sort of fascinated with the ear rots. And it's just like you said sort of earlier in the podcast, Andrew, is that I feel that it's a little bit of an under-researched area, um, at least in terms of management options, right? Um, the, the standard management practice has been, you know, hybrid resistance. And there's been some really good research breeding efforts for um, improving hybrid resistance for a lot of our different EROTs. And so that's a, that's a big area um, that continues to this day. One of the areas that I'm interested in, um, and that's actually like looking at some of your work, Andrew, is that we've been looking at fungicide applications and how we can use those to potentially manage ear rots because there just are not a lot of in-season options um, if, if conditions do favor ear rots. And so trying to use some of these products um, that have good fungicide efficacy, you know, on other fungal pathogens, it'd be great if we could try to find some of those for EROTs. And what we've been finding is that there are products that have potential for EROT control, but one of our big hurdles is application delivery. Oh, yeah. So yep. getting products to the ear, and then also if we think about how fungicides move in the plant, um, I personally think some of our hurdles in efficacy are due to, you know, ear orientation, the husk, um, tissue, and really just getting that product where it needs to go. And so we've worked a lot on that. Um, we, the 360 nozzles, um, yep. look at different application methods to try to improve our efficacy for these types of products on ear rots. It, it is very complicated because I think you add in timing as well. You know, you think about when some of these ear, ear, ear rots infect, you know, it's through those silks. And so trying to time an application around when your silks are out and, and maybe receptive to some of these spores um, of these ear rots, it gets pretty complicated quick. And that's something we, you know, I was just starting to look at at Iowa State uh, right, right before I left there. But yeah, it is an under-researched topic. And I think there's a, you know, I remember hearing, hearing someone out of Canada talk about their, their problem with Dons and, yeah. and some of the, the management practices they're trying to do or use to reduce, you know, the, the deoxyanivalenol uh, up there. It's, yeah, it's, it's an under-researched area, but I think it's one that 
that could become uh, even more important if we continue to have you know environmental conditions like this where we're just either extremely wet or extremely dry. It certainly seems like you know we're we're starting to see extreme weather patterns that, in my opinion, are going to lead us to having to just be really cognizant of management practice and and um, it's interesting under the kind of the conversation we had a week ago with Allison Robertson just about you know the timing of fungicide applications it's interesting that that there may be um, there may be some opportunity to uh, you know check two boxes at once or or at least try and time some of these applications for multiple benefits tar spot is obviously causing us to rethink our fungicide use and certainly timing of fungicide use um kirsten i i greatly appreciate this so our podcast is called a penny for your thoughts and as we as we get ready to wrap our show i'm going to ask andrew um to kind of do our closing segment but kirsten i'd invite you to participate um, we, we call this portion of our show cashing in our penny. Um, you, sometimes you get what you pay for, but, uh, we have asked Andrew to give us basically three succinct takeaways and we would love for you to weigh in on those Kirsten. Yeah. So I, I think this, this was an excellent episode. I, I, to, to give an idea of how, how much knowledge I think there needs to more knowledge there needs to be on this topic. I, I learned quite a bit just talking with you, Kirsten. Uh, the, the one takeaway, you know, I, I had not heard that uh, a black light, you know, that that is 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 still a, a way maybe maybe we can detect um, some of these ear rots, and and really that 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 is detecting the kojic acid um, that that is produced by those ear rots. Um, I, I think that's a good takeaway. You know, if we ever have this issue again, that's something something to consider. Um, I think another 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 thing I learned um, in, in a main takeaway, you know, if you're storing your grain under a year, uh, focus on that 15% grain moisture. If you're thinking about storing that over a year, maybe maybe uh, try and get that down to 13%. And the the th- third takeaway is is I, th- I think scouting. You know, that that 10% threshold was, was something I learned. You know, I, I've read a few articles and there's really not a whole lot of discussion on on what that threshold is. So if you're out there walking a field and, and you're looking at your, you know, your 17.5 inches, one one thousandth of an acre or 100 plants and you see 10 percent uh, ear rots, uh, take that into consideration and, and maybe do some testing. Kirsten, what would you add? No, I think that's a really good wrap up. Um, just like you mentioned, um, I just emphasize the black light. It could be used as an indicator, but anything that you see, you know, it's not a definitive. You got to go get a test to find out what you really have. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's excellent. And I, um, I really appreciate you joining us. Kirsten, help our listeners connect with you. If, if we have listeners that want to reach out, um, social handles or emails, what's, what's the best way for our listeners to have access to Kirsten? Yeah, so my email is just my name. It's kirsten.wise at uky.edu. I am on Twitter at cropdoc08. Um, and so, you know, I'm not, this year I have not been as good at Twitter, but um, I, I usually am pretty active. Um, but that's some really good ways to kind of reach out. And I'm happy to answer any questions anybody has as follow up. We really appreciate you joining us today, and we will put your contact information in the show notes. Uh, so listeners, if you want to reach out, please do and uh, give, give a follow on social and certainly reach out uh, via email if you, have, um, if you have questions or concerns. And, and actually, before I forget, Kirsten, is there, so that we can post it with this podcast, is there a good reference? What, what's your favorite reference in regards to looking at 
ear rots? You know, if, if customers want to, or growers want a, a, a visual of these ear rots, what, what's your favorite go-to source for, for a good visual? So um, a few years ago, we did a whole ear rot series through the Crop Protection Network. So we have publications that overview and have really good images of all of the ear rots that we discussed and a few others. There's a frequently asked questions about mycotoxins. There's a um, some information on where you can get grain tested, um, places that are approved um, by the Grain Inspection Service if you need to get a test. Um, and a few other resources as well. And all of that is available on the Crop Protection Network. Great. Well, that's, yeah, that's great. I appreciate that. We will, we will certainly link that as well. And uh, yeah, we, we, we greatly appreciate it. Well, thank you very much, Kirsten. Uh, again, uh, as Sean did earlier, uh, I want to thank our, our listeners and followers. You know, we, we've got some very good feedback um, on, on this podcast. You know, I, th I think keeping it brand agnostic and just focusing on the science has, has really proved uh, beneficial to the to the listeners. So, so I thank you very much. Uh, and, and once again, to get everybody excited about our, our guests next week, we have an industry professional that, that uh, we're going to discuss phantom yield loss, that ever so popular topic this time of year. Well, with, with harvest starting, it'll be great. Kirsten, thank you to our listeners. Thank you. And we will see you guys next week.